Well, why don't we turn in our Bibles now to the book of uh, James as we read a short passage here. The message will come from the book of Job, but the scripture reading will be from James. James chapter 5, 11. As he mentions Job, and we take a snapshot and you'll have your fingers in the book of Job after we read, for we will turn to the book of Job and take a bird's eye view of chapters 3 through 42 as we look at the life of Job. But James here mentions Job, Job, a righteous man, a blameless man, a man who was seen both in the sight of God and the sight of man as a man who was, who was walking with him, who turned away from evil, well known and uh, blessed of God. And calamity came upon him. James says in James chapter 5, verse 11, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard that the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Let's pray before we begin our study of the Word of God this morning. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit and open our eyes, Lord, that we might see and understand and know you. And Father, may we grasp the truths of your word, that we might take them to heart. And when the storms of trials and suffering come, we pray, O God, that we might stand firm, that we might not be blown about, and that, Father, we might grow, that we might shine for you. So, Father, guide me. I pray, God, that you would give me the words to say, and may your grace be upon all of us as we turn to your holy word. In your precious Son's name we pray. Amen. When I think of the subject of suffering, I think of a number of people, but one person that I think of, perhaps you have heard of before, is a person named Johnny Erickson Tata who has risen above the difficulties of her life in suffering. Some of you have heard of her name before. Some of you have seen her movie. Some of you know of her life or have read about her. She was involved in a diving accident. A diving accident 40 years ago. She dove off of a swimming area into a lake, hit her neck, the bottom of rock, I think, left her paralyzed and paraplegic from the neck down. The story is about her and her struggle and how she found hope in God after struggling with thoughts of suicide, of hopelessness, of depression. And now she inspires, inspires millions of people. She has a ministry called Johnny and Friends that really has encouraged those with physical disabilities to see the, the significance of their life and how God might use them. And her detailed paintings, which she does with a paintbrush in her teeth, are in high demand. And her movie, her Johnny, if you have not seen it, is well worth watching. I remember meeting her at a shepherd's conference, and even though she was so tired, she was so very, very gracious. And when I talked to her, she was asking so many questions, asked questions about me, and her focus wasn't on herself. But she writes an illustration about the subject of suffering, and she writes this and entitled, What Gives Suffering Meaning? She writes, 
You were walking down a street, minding your own business, and when you're accosted and forced to carry a huge and heavy basket on your back, you're ordered to walk three blocks, turn left, go two blocks, turn right, and proceed straight on. Staggering underneath the weight of this basket, you stumble on, bewildered and angry. The weight of the basket is crushing. Your back is breaking. The whole thing is meaningless and haphazard. You resent how the heavy burden consumes you because the focal point of your entire existence is that basket. When you're halfway around the third block, reeling underneath the burden, you finally bellow. What gives? Then, the truth is revealed. The burden you're carrying is your child, injured and unconscious. What? On top of that, you are not trudging through a meaningless rat maze, but the most direct route to the hospital emergency room. And immediately, you straighten up. You inhale new vigor, your knees quit buckling, adrenaline and fresh energy quicken your pace and you move forward with a new attitude. Why the change? The suffering you're going through involves a relationship, not just any relationship, but one with your child. It is the love of your child that quickens your steps and buoys your heart. Your relationship gives your burden meaning and suffering has no meaning in itself. Left to its own, it is a frustrating and bewildering burden. But given the context of a relationship, suffering suddenly has meaning, unquote. And that is so true for the Christian, isn't it? For the Christian, the suffering that we have has meaning. For some reason, we face things in life and we know that it is somehow for the glory of God and for our ultimate good, even though it may not seem good at the time. For Christians, there is a context to suffering. And last week I shared with you about my time with Ron and Carol Keenly and how Ron is his health. And people ask me how he's doing. And I say that he is not doing well in terms of his health, but his attitude and his perspective are astounding. As I shared with you, I asked before I left, well, how can I pray for you? And we prayed together. And the first thing that he asked for was not for healing from his cancer, which has gone into his lymph nodes, but his prayer request. And perhaps that was assumed healing. I think we perhaps mentioned that on the side, but his primary prayer request and perhaps his first was that he would have a good testimony before others about Christ and God. Because he knew, he knew, he said, that many people would be watching. That's a perspective that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians, if you'll flip there real quick. 2 Corinthians is one of my favorite passages here in 2 Corinthians 4.16. For Paul shares about his own difficulties and his own suffering for the cause of Christ. And he begins in chapter 4, verse 16. He says there to the letter to the Corinthian church, therefore, 4.16, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared for us this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. That's such an encouraging passage to me when we are having difficult times. Because this life and the things in this life are temporal, aren't they? Whereas the things that Paul has said that his heart and his mind and his eyes are focused on are eternal. Because even this body that I have is going to be gone. To be replaced by a glorified body that God will give later on. And this past month, since the beginning of the month, we've been focusing on the subject of suffering. Specifically, God's purpose in it and how we can handle it. And last week we went through and saw the book of James and the first portion of James and how James tells us how we are to handle suffering and how we're to have joy in suffering. Not seek happiness because happiness depends upon circumstances, but to have joy that God produces in our hearts because why? We see that it's a refining process in us. That God tests us and He molds us and He makes us as He puts us into the fire and scrapes out the dross so that He can someday look into that gold and see a reflection in that gold of His Son. We are to come to God, James says, with humility and with genuineness. The genuineness of those who endure, their faith will shine and the reward, James says, will be that of eternal life because what is truly inside will show on the outside. And then we go back to the book of Job. Today we go back to the book of Job, the first two weeks we have spent there as we started out. And we will look at a bird's eye perspective here in chapters 3 through 42. But you remember what he said about Job, if you recall, in Job chapter 1. said that he was a blameless man, didn't he? Blameless man who turned away from evil, who walked from the sight of God in a blameless way in the sight of people. He was very wealthy. He was highly respected. He went to the city gate. And people wouldn't speak because they would want to hear what he had to say. Remember? He was a person who had great wealth, herds of animals. He had ten children. He had many servants. He had good health. But in one day, he lost everything that he owned. People came and either stole his livestock or fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Or his ten children were eating in a house and Satan brought a wind to blow and bear down on that house, crushing all of his own children and he lost his wealth and his family. Then, soon afterwards, he lost his own health with boils all over his body. They began to show up from head to toe, such so severe that even his friends, when his friends came from afar, they didn't recognize him because he was so deformed in his face. That's just in chapter 1 and 2. Throughout chapter 3 to 42, it tells us even more about what he suffered. It tells us that the boils that he had 
were so irritating. Of course, he sat down out where the lepers sat in the ashes and scraped his boils with pottery because they were so irritating. 324, he had loss of appetite. An agonizing discomfort as well. Chapter 7, verse 4, he had insomnia. And his, his boils in 7.5 would be oozing and his flesh would be infested with worms and dust. He had hallucinations in, seven, in 7.14 and the decaying of his skin. He was shriveling up in 16.8 and 17.7. He had severe halitosis, which is bad breath in 19.17. Relentless pain in 30.17. And his skin began to turn black, it says, in 30.30 with a raging fever that he had. And he had dramatic weight loss near the end of the scriptures there. Not only that, in Job 19.18, it's very clear, Job 19.18 and following, when the kids would see him and he would get up, they would make fun of him or tease him. And his former associates would, would talk about him, shun him. And it says in 19.18, all of his loved ones have turned against him. Near complete rejection. Not only did he lose his family, he lost all of his, relative, all of his riches, He lost his health, and then he lost everyone that he thought was his friend. Put on top of that, the disparaging and discouraging remark by his wife that maybe he should kill himself. That was the severity of his suffering. And I think to myself, my goodness, he has nothing. Everything he could think of has been taken away from him. And even his friends who come, the three friends who come, they begin to give poor advice to him. I think to myself, what happened? What would happen if that happened to you? What would happen? How would you respond if that happened to your spouse? Everything was gone. And one day, lost everything. Became so sick that you had to care for them for the rest of your life. What would you do? The book of Job chronicles for us a series, chapters 3 to 42 series of discussions he begins having with his friends because his friends come at first at first his friends are great they come that's that's a wonderful thing they show up unlike all of his other friends and then they sit there with him because it was inappropriate to talk before he spoke and so they sat there and that's often a wise thing to do not to say too much not to ask too much or give assumptions of this cause and that cause for whatever it might be but then his friends begin to speak and Here we learn three primary principles about suffering throughout these chapters. Three primary principles about suffering. The first we learn is that suffering is not necessarily because of personal sin. Suffering is not necessarily because of personal sin. Eliphaz speaks in chapter 4, by the way, verse 7 and following. And begins to say something that's wrong. Completely wrong. He says, you know, he says, remember now whoever perished being innocent. Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they come to an end. In other words, Eliphaz implies, look, all personal suffering and death happens because of somebody's sin, your personal sin. And worse yet, in chapter verse 12, he begins saying, you know, I heard a word, I had a vision, something spoke to me, my sleep... And you know, that kind of adds to the authenticity of my advice. And his friends chime in. 
in the, in, the, in, the, in the scores of chapters that follow, in the next 20 and 30 chapters that follow, they say to him, get right with God. Look, you, if you're, if you're suffering, it must be because of your sin. Or you must be sinning, they say. Only the wicked suffer. The wicked won't, won't, won't live for a long time and you are sinning. So, you better get right with God. And while it's true that, you know, all things stem from the principle of sin, all these bad things that happen, but suffering doesn't necessarily occur because of a person's personal sin. If you look in John chapter 9, the thought was the same in John chapter 9 when Jesus was walking along with his disciples in John chapter 9 verse 1 to 3. The Bible tells us that Jesus was walking along the road and he passed by. And he sa- it says he saw a man blind from birth. And so there was this guy who was along the side of the road and Jesus is walking by and his disciples ask him, it says, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? In other words, the assumption was this man was born with a birth defect. He must have done something wrong. Or maybe his parents have done something wrong. What a terrible thing to assume. Unless, of course, suffering is obviously the result of a person's actions. We don't assume that something that has happened to someone is because of their personal sin. And Jesus answered in that same passage. It says, it was neither this man sinned or, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was blind since birth. So that God had a purpose for that, and that purpose was that so that He might display His glory through that man. Physical handicaps aren't something that we look down upon, but rather they're a means by which God can be glorified as well. I've heard people speak disparagingly or down on people perhaps who are disabled or handicapped in some way or born with abnormalities. And that's not to be the case for us in our Christian perspective. Each one is created for a purpose. Each one is still special to the Lord and the Lord may use someone who is blind or like Johnny Erickson who is a paraplegic who became a paraplegic or whatever it might be. God uses and He loves them just the same. And so when someone is suffering, whether it be to whatever the reason, we can't assume that it's because of their personal sin. That's what his friends assume here in Job. Number two, That God is just and fair. God is always just and fair in all that He does. As James says before, He is a merciful God. Throughout the book of Job, Job has three complaints. Job has three basic complaints that is answered by this idea that, well, perhaps God is not just or not fair, but God is just and fair. One is that His complaint, one and one, is God doesn't hear me. 13, 3 and 24. Why do you hide your face and consider me in your enemy, he says? I mean, when things happen to us, we say, why, why doesn't God hear me? I pray, I pray, I pray. And God doesn't do what I'm asking Him to do. I've asked God to, to, to give me that job. I've asked God if He would uh, give, give my kids some, uh, the right school. Or I've asked God for this or that or whatever it might be. God doesn't hear me. I'm just going to give up. You ever think that way? When God may very well be saying, wait for my timing. Wait for my timing. As Paul said, even in 2 Corinthians, he was given a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what that was. 
Could have been some other person, could have been a physical ailment, could have been something, but it was a thorn in his flesh and the purpose of that thorn in his flesh was so that he would be kept humble. Sometimes God desires us to be humble. You ever notice how much we humble ourselves when we suffer? We come and pray all the more harder because we are suffering. But God, God is a God who hears His people. God, secondly, in His second complaint is, God is punishing me. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison, they poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And Job says, you know, God is not only not hearing me, but God is punishing me for some reason. I'm okay. But we begin to think of all the things that we've done wrong to deserve this type of a thing, don't we? When we're having a difficult time, we begin to think, what in the world have I done? And we begin to confess our sins and we realize our sin and we come before God God, if you do this, I'll be more committed. God, if you do that, I'll do this or whatever it might be. But the Lord knows our heart and He may or may not be punishing us. He may or may not be the discipline of God. I don't know, but it's not necessarily because of the discipline of God. But God knows our hearts and there's no sense in bargaining with God. If we know what we ought to do, we ought to do it today. Not tomorrow. Not if God gives us what we want. And sometimes if it is because of discipline, Hebrews 12, 6 reminds us that whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. Even the discipline of God is that which is motivated by love for us. Job's third complaint is that God allows the wicked to prosper. Why do you, the wicked, still live, continue on and also become powerful? I mean, what we do when we face suffering, we have hard times, we lose a job or, or, or we lose something precious to us. And we say, look, look at them. How can they have such a nice family, a smooth life, and they don't even walk with God? They don't know God. How in the world can God bless them? And I have a life like this. How, how, what in the world have I done to deserve this? And we become discontent and we think for all that we've done for the Lord, I do this and it's just not worth it anymore. We tell ourselves that it's not worth it to live a godly life when God allows the wicked to suffer. But that's where, again, we remember the truth that God is a just and righteous God and He desires the best for us in some way, shape or form unknown to us. And Job defends himself throughout all of these arguments that he has against God and the accusations against his friends. And he becomes, in this book, he becomes, as you see, self-righteous in his thinking. Thinking, I'm completely innocent. I haven't done anything. I deserve better. And that's often what we think. What did we ever do? But God is a completely just and fair God. God is a sovereign God. We become discontent when we begin to compare ourselves to what we think we deserve. Pocatu Paul, a missionary to South Africa, wrote something that would help us in our perspective. Should you find it hard, it is written, to get to sleep tonight, just remember the homeless family who has no bed to lie in. Should you find yourself stuck in traffic, don't despair. There are people in this world for whom driving is an unheard of privilege. Should you have a bad day at work? Think of the man who has been out of work for the last six months. Should you despair over a relationship gone bad? 
Think of the person who has never known what it's like to love and be loved in return. Should you grieve the passing of another weekend? Think of the woman in dire straits working 12 hours a day, 7 days a week for minimal wages to feed her family. Should your car break down, leaving you miles away from assistance? Think of the paraplegic who would love the opportunity to take that walk. Should you panic over a new gray hair in the mirror? Think of the person on chemotherapy who wishes that she had hair to examine. Should you find yourself at a loss and pondering what life is all about? What's my purpose? Be thankful for there are those who do not live long enough to get the opportunity to wonder. Should you find yourself a victim of other people's bitterness, of other people's ignorance, smallness or insecurities? Remember how much worse it could have been if you were one of those bitter and insecure people. Perspective is the key. Perspective is the key for often we try to change our circumstances so that we find happiness. But God desires we change our heart and our perspective on life. Remember that God is righteous and just in all that he does. Thirdly, thirdly, we are to submit and draw near to God when suffering. We're to draw near to God and submit to him in suffering. And in Job's case, as we look in the later chapters in Job 35, we find that he has another friend named Elihu, who is a very young friend who hasn't spoken since his other three friends were older. Elihu says, well, I'm not old enough. I shouldn't speak before the others, but what I have to speak is this. And he tells him, you need to humble yourself before God. You need to wait patiently for the, for the others. And his advice is much wiser than that of his other friends. And in the end of the book, God speaks, finally. For Job has all of these justifications that he gives for his life. And we turn to chapter 42. Turn to chapter 42. It says there in verse 1, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. Now, in previous chapters, to give you a background, God has spoken to Job and he said, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when all of these things happened? Where were you when I, when I, when I did the great things that I have done throughout all of this earth? Job is speechless. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He comes to God with humility and he comes to God humbling himself during this time of suffering when he has lost everything. And he has said, God, I don't deserve something like this. And yet God says, my ways are higher than your ways. We're reminded of what Isaiah says. That's what Peter reminds us of. When we face difficulties, he tells us, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety upon Him, for He cares for you. There's a song that we sing that says, No higher place there is than at the feet of our Lord. 
God is displeased with his friends. Verse 7 through 9. But then in the end, after Job's repentance, it says in verse 10, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who have known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. He named them all. He named the first, Jemiah, the second, Keziah, the third, Karen, Hapuk, and all in the land. No women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. God blessed the faithfulness of Job. God blessed the repentance of Job. God blessed Job when Job came to him and humbled himself in his suffering when he had lost everything. God desires to bless us as well. God desires to bless us when we come before Him and His blessings may come in different forms. Not how we would desire perhaps, but God's desire for us is that His will would be done for His glory and for our good. Suffering is a part of this world of whether we do, whether we suffer for doing what is right, whether we suffer for doing because of God's discipline or whether we suffer for our testimony or many times because there's reasons which we don't know. But suffering isn't because of our personal sin all the time. God is just and fair in all that He does and we're to submit and draw near to God when we do suffer. When we submit to His plans, we shine all the more brightly for the Lord. Johnny Erickson Tata writes about her days as she tries to shine. Because, you see, she is a quadriplegic. Can't do basic things like get up out of bed for herself. Needs help feeding herself. Needs constant care. Runs a ministry that ministers to thousands of people. And she's been encouragement, as I mentioned, to millions. And she still ministers even today. You can find her, her website and Look at the ministry that she has. She's often given opportunities to testify and she'll sing. She'll sing, which is difficult for her to lift her body and try to take a breath enough to sing. But she'll sing of heaven. How she'll have new legs to run and jump. But she writes this regarding a day in the life of hers. Quote, Honesty is always the best policy, but especially when you're surrounded by a crowd of women in a restroom during a break at a Christian women's conference. She speaks at a number of conferences. One woman putting on lipstick said, Oh, Johnny, you always look so together, so happy in your wheelchair. I wish I had your joy. Several other women around her nodded. How do you do it? She asked, and she capped her lipstick. I glanced at the nicely dressed women around me. I knew that the break would soon be over. How could I answer her question in 60 seconds? 
How could I sum up in a soundbite what has taken me three decades of quadriplegia to learn? I don't do it, I said. That raised their eyebrows. In fact, may I tell you honestly how I woke up this morning? Several women leaned against the counter to listen. This is an average day, I breathed deeply. After my husband, Ken, leaves for work at 6 a.m., I'm alone until I hear the front door open at 7 a.m. That's when a friend arrives to get me up. While I listen to her make coffee, I pray. Oh, Lord, help my friend. My friend will soon give me a bath, get me dressed, sit me up in my chair, brush my hair and teeth, and send me out the door. I don't have the strength to face this routine one more time. I have no resources. I don't have a smile to take into the day, but you do. May I have yours? God, I need you desperately. Looking at their expressions, I could tell that underneath the makeup and the jewelry, they too were carrying burdens. They were weary. Their hearts were bruised and numb. And they were curious to know more. So what happens when your friend comes through the bedroom door, one of them asked. I turn my head towards her and give her a smile sent straight from heaven. It's not mine. It's God's. And so, I said, gesturing to my paralyzed legs, whatever joy you see today was hard won this morning. The women in the restroom were silent. It's the only way to live. It's the Christian way to live. The break was over. It was time to move on. That evening, many of them went home with weary bodies, swollen ankles, and sore feet to face broken garbage disposals, indifferent husbands, and rebellious children. I hope that the women also went home knowing that they can go desperately and urgently to God for grace. I have learned that the weaker we are, the more we need to lean on God. And the more we lean on God, the stronger we discover Him to be. God has used my quadriplegia to teach me and others through me that in our weakness, He is strong. Unquote. That is the day of a person who cannot drive themselves, who cannot eat for themselves, who cannot take a bath, who cannot get around, who cannot even get up out of bed. And yet, she has joy. And yet, she has life each and every day to share with others and be a blessing to others in her suffering that she has suffered for four decades now. I realize that perhaps the difficulties of life might be facing each person differently. And yet, perhaps you're like this person. You're like the women in the bathroom. You comb your hair and you go out in the day. You put on that lipstick. You put on a smile. And you hope that everything is going to be okay. And in reality, you know what? Life just isn't so easy. Each and every day, it's a fight. And yet, there is someone. There are people who know what that's like who fight every day to have a smile on their face, who say, what am I going to do today? Because I don't know what will happen. I don't know how I feel. And I feel like falling apart. 
I'm not doing well today or I'm depressed today or today brings bad news because of something that happened yesterday or whatever it may be and suffering comes to you. Maybe it's some sort of situation with work or maybe it's with your family or maybe it's with your friends or relationships or you're looking forward to the next day. It's a day that you can call upon God and humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God Casting all of our anxiety upon Him because He cares for us. And when we do so, God grants to us that smile that we can be a blessing to others because we have been blessed of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Oftentimes, Lord, our pain and our suffering pales in comparisons to many who are suffering all the more tragically. But, Father, no matter what our situation might be, God, I pray that you would look into our heart. I pray, God, that you might grant to us the smile of your grace for those that are hurting. We pray, O God, that you would grant to them your strength, You know the pain, the silent pain, perhaps, that they struggle with. May they realize, Father, that sometimes may not be because of anything that they have done. May they realize, Father, that you are still a God of love, God of righteousness and of justice, who cares for them. And, Father, may they also remember, O God, that you work all things, Father, for good. There is a purpose, Father, for all of these things. And in the end, Father, may they sing of your praises and give a smile to bless others as well. In Jesus' precious name, amen.